Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Herob the Mount of God. Have you ever had your expectations dashed? Have you ever really, really anticipated that something would happen, but it didn't? When I was 16, um, I uh, had a memorable moment like this. It was big at the time, I assure you. I'd been given a car by my grandparents. I had it paid for, by, I paid for it to get it up. It was in South Australia. I got it to Catherine, which is where I grew up. And um, I'd been waiting for the opportunity to get my driver's license. Now, at the time, at 15 and nine months, you could get your L's. So I got my L's. No worries, past that. I drove my car around with my parents in the passenger seat. I did the lessons, I practiced. I was all set for my P's test. You've got good memories of this, don't you? <laughs> I took the test. I did pretty good on most of the big ticket items. You know, heel start, U-turn. Don't think I passed the reverse parallel park. But, but I got to the end of the test full of hope and expectation that I'll soon have the freedom to drive my own car by myself. Yes. I went to the MVR, the motor vehicle registry up here, after the test, and I waited for the lady who had just spent an hour or so driving around town with me, her clipboard and pen at the ready, and I waited for her to give me the good news. She put her things away, she came back to me, and she said, I'm sorry, you've failed your test. What? What? <laughs> uh, how? Things began to run through my brain. I was, I was sure I did everything right, except the reverse parallel park. I could drive. I, 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 really, I could drive. I was supposed to be walking away with my license today. I mean, it turns out basically I'd swapped mirror check and shoulder check, and that had failed me every single corner of my entire test. So uh, I failed. I can't remember how I got home, but I basically went to my room, shut the door, sat on the ground against it, and yep, I'm pretty sure there were, were tears. The, the thing was, I didn't really fail things. Uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't me. I, I didn't do that sort of thing. I didn't, I didn't fail. I thought I'd set myself up with 
all the right circumstances to achieve my goal. And I had fully expected to have a new license that I could show off at school the next day. And, you know, my pride may have been a little punctured and may or may not have been elevating my anticipated fortunate position um, that I had a car and I would soon have my license. And in that moment, I was devastated. So I ask the question again, have you ever had your expectations dashed? Well, this week, as we continue in our series, as you've heard on 1 Kings, uh, 1 and 2 Kings, but 1 Kings this morning, Elijah has had his hopes shattered in spectacular fashion. So far, as we've gone through 1 Kings, we've seen, uh, over the last few chapters, we've seen the, the life of Elijah as he undertakes God's task as God's prophet to the king and the people of Israel, uh, specifically the northern kingdom in what by this time is a divided people of God. So far in his story, we've been introduced to a man who listens to God's word, confidently delivering that word to God's people and seeing firsthand that word go to work to great effect. But as we've just read together, that is not the Elijah we see in our passage this week. In 1 Kings 19, we find a fearful and dejected man sitting under a tree looking for a swift end to his apparently failed life. How has that happened? Where has the fire gone? Well, as we look at this passage today, I want, to, uh, I want us to look at three sort of big ideas from this passage, four big ideas from this passage. Failing to focus on God leads to doubt. Doubt can lead to fear. Fear can lead to despair. But that God, in all of that, remains sovereign. So, for those who were here last week and... and uh, You'll remember, and for those that weren't, if you've read through 1 Kings 17 and 18, you'll, you'll know that last week ended with Elijah running to Jezreel, ahead of Ahab's chariot, with the storm, route, storm clouds rolling in uh, after God had powerfully demonstrated that he was the one true God. First, through the sending of fire from heaven, burning, uh, burning and destroying everything that it touched, and destroying any suggestion that Baal... The, the, the God that the Israelites had begun to worship was anything more than a puffed-up counterfeit. And second, as though to drive home the fact that Baal was definitely not the God of the weather or anything else, after sending fire from heaven, God broke the drought that had plagued Israel and the land for more than three years prior, clearly fulfilling the words spoken through Elijah that it would not rain until God, through Elijah, said that it would. The intended purpose of this demonstration on Mount Carmel? Well, 1 Kings 18.21 tells us that before the showdown, before the showdown on Mount Carmel, Elijah addressed the people and said, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. So the intended purpose of the demonstration was to be a call 
to his people to turn their hearts back to him, back to Yahweh, the one true God. Now after these events, we might expect that Ahab, the king of God's people in Israel, would have been the first to respond on his knees as God's miraculous sign revealed the power and the truth of his word. And we would think that he would lead his nation back to true worship of Yahweh. In Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20, we, we looked at that a bit last week, we, we saw that God spoke through Moses, directing the future king to follow God's law so that his heart would not be lifted up against his brothers or above his brothers, that he would not turn aside from the Lord and the king's kingdom and that of his children would continue. Earlier in Kings, as is on the screen, we, there's, a, there's a chapter, chapter 2, as King David is, is handing over to his son Solomon. He reiterates these truths to Solomon. And he says from verse 2, um, if it's in, you, I don't have the full one on the screen, but if you want, it's uh, 1 Kings chapter 2 in the Bibles. He says, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But just as Ahab had certainly not shown himself to be such a king so far, even now, after this great show of God's divinity, Ahab continues to demonstrate he is not the king God's people are looking for. Instead of repenting and lifting his hands in worship of the God who can actually control the weather, Yahweh, the Lord, while the rain falls, Ahab runs off and tells his wife Jezebel all that Elijah has done, which was probably something like, Oh, Jezebel, Elijah's kind of killed all 450 of my prophets of Baal, <laughs> if he was Australian. In Deuteronomy 18, 19 to 20, um, a little after the, prom the promise about the kings, Moses had described what the people would expect as they came into the uh, the, the land of, uh, this land that they were in now. Moses had described the worship practices of those people and he described abominable practices of idol worship, divination, sorcery and all sorts of things when you read the chapter. But he told the people of God not to follow these practices, but to be blameless before the Lord their God. In verses 15 to 19, Moses goes on to say, The Lord your God, in that time, will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you, are, you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more, lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So now, after God had so clearly spoken through his prophet on Mount Carmel, a prophet like Moses, who had risen up from among the people, who had spoken the words of God that God had spoken, had commanded him to speak, where God had now so clearly spoken against the false worship of the Baals. The worship that the king and God's people had fallen into. Surely now the removal of the prophets of Baal should have been something the king commanded to happen. But he didn't, and the prophet was left to carry out this responsibility. The king, as we said, just went straight to his pagan wife to complain, and who knows if he even told her about what God had done with the fire and the altar and the burning of everything. I mean, maybe, maybe Jezebel even thought the rain was the result of Baal. Well, whatever was said, when Jezebel heard the message from Ahab, she didn't listen and respond in repentance either, did she? Rather, she had a message taken to Elijah, swearing that she would see him dead, like the prophets of Baal, by the next day, calling a curse on herself by her gods, presumably Asherah, Baal maybe, that they ought to do worse to her if she had not achieved her purpose by then. Now, pause with me just for a moment as we take a look at this threat. I mean, we saw at the end of our passage last week, if you want to see 1 Kings 18 verse 46, that Elijah is in Jezreel. Ahab and Jezebel are in Jezreel. Why would she send a threat to Elijah and not just someone to kill him? I mean, only a couple of weeks ago, we read that she had been freely killing off the prophets of God. Elijah is there in Jezreel with them. Why not just send a detachment of soldiers, have him arrested? An assassin, maybe? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe she was afraid, as Ahab had appeared to be whenever he saw Elijah. Maybe she really was going to do it, but she liked the, the drama of sending a threatening message first, causing Elijah to suffer along the way, very James Bond villain. At the very least, it was a clear example of some psychological warfare as she taunted Elijah. She, something we as Christians may actually experience and be the subject of from time to time ourselves. And I guess to be honest, we need to be careful that how we might use threats, perhaps not threats of death, I hope, but how we might use threats to get what we want, to scare someone into submission from time to time. little thing to think about along the way. Well, whatever was in Jezebel's mind, the reality was that the people had responded. They'd responded to God in the moment the fire fell from heaven, the people fell on their faces. Chapter 18 says, and, the Lord, and, and declared the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The rain was falling. God had spoken. The next thing you know, well, the people might be turning away from her and her gods. 
And then where would her power be? I mean, she might even end up dead herself. Jezebel needed to get the prophet out of town. So whether she was going to kill him or just wanted to do the next best thing that she could think of to throw him off, she sends a curse-enforced threat. With Elijah out of the picture, the fickle Israelites would no doubt restore to their, uh, return to their idol worship and her power would be restored. Now, with the words of Moses clearly in mind in Deuteronomy 18, one might think that there is no way that Elijah was going to be put off by this. One might think that there is no doubt that Elijah will allow this threat to roll off him like water off a duck's back. With all that had happened in Elijah's life to date, surely he is the prophet that Moses is talking about. Elijah had not once but twice stood face to face with the king, knowing full well the king was not real pleased with him. Yet he condemned his rebellion, challenged him in the name of God to his face with no fear. So 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 and 18, 17, if you're looking for them. He turned taunted 450 armed and crazed prophets of Baal at the showdown on their home turf. One man against the world, as J.R. described it last week. No fear. He'd led the people to remove the false prophets of Baal in the bloody uprising thereafter. No fear. And as for the strength of her curse, well, surely Elijah could have considered the threat to have been made completely flimsy by being linked to Jezebel's gods when he'd just seen God powerfully demonstrate that they were nothing. Well, despite all of that, despite everything Yahweh had done, despite Elijah having heard the Lord's voice directly, Elijah is suddenly afraid of this threat. And so, Elijah, the prophet of God, ran for his life. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, in that moment, Elijah retreated before a beaten enemy. So I ask again, what has happened? Thankfully, as we read on, we get a little clue as to what has happened. And it seems that Elijah, in that moment, saw the resolve of the pagan queen and the foolish Israelite king. And in that moment, he formed a belief in his heart that the signs had not worked. The fire from heaven, the rain, a flash-like run of an old man through the desert. None of these things had caused their hearts to be softened. The signs had not brought them to their knees. And it seems in the heat of that moment, when the threat is made, the prophet of God had expected the outcome of the signs to be quite different. I mean, maybe in his heart... He kind of wondered if he, if he was that prophet that Moses had foretold. He'd, I mean, the things that God had done. Well, 
whatever his exact thought process was, verse 5 tells us that at least in that moment he doubted the effectiveness of his ministry. He said to God soon, I am no better than my father's. He had failed. He'd failed to bring the king and queen and thus the people of God back to God. He had failed to turn their hearts. And he let his doubt cause his eyes to fall from his focus on the one true God. And he was afraid. And he ran. Brothers and sisters, this is not a risk that's unique to Elijah. I mean, we may allow ourselves to be surprised by the sudden change in the prophet's demeanour, but are we really much different? When we ourselves start to focus our attention on our own circumstances, when we let our eyes drop from a focus on God, isn't that where our doubt begins to creep into? I mean, of course, when it does happen, and I would almost guarantee that it will at some point, probably more than once, that's a good early signal to go to his word, to be reminded that you can trust the Lord. In that moment, when you recognize doubt forming, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews 2.12 Like the father seeking Jesus' help for his son in Mark 9.24, cry out to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because if we don't, as Elijah discovered, our doubt can lead to fear. We're in verse 3 of our passage this week. When Elijah ran, he didn't just sort of get out of town for a bit. He didn't just go and get some space. He he fled a long, long way. Mount Carmel is the little triangle you can see there on on the left. Jezreel, top of the red line. That's where he was. That's where the threat was made. First he got across the lands of Israel and Judah as far as he could go, all the way to Bathsheba. some 173 kilometres as far as roads exist today. He was out of the land of King Ahab and Jezebel and right down to the bottom of the southern kingdom of Judah. And at this time that was ruled by King Jehoshaphat. But it seems that even in the relative safety of God's people in Judah, he was, that was not enough for Elijah. And after leaving his servant behind in Bathsheba, Elijah walked even further a whole day out into, the land, out into the desert and out of the land of Judah. There's no line, but he's now somewhere out there in the desert. We don't know. How far is a day's journey? We can't cover it all today, but Bathsheba is um, important in terms of Abraham as well. Many years earlier, as he went out into a desert leaving his servants behind and was tested by God as he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac and was saved from that in the moment. So have a look in Genesis chapters 
21 and 22, if you'd like to look back and see some of, in God's providence, how he just brings all these things together. In the desert of, Mount, of, of, of Sinai, Elijah had pretty well got as far away as possible. And having made it to his apparent destination, the middle of nowhere, Elijah slumps down under a broom tree, some relative shade, some relative relief in a parched landscape, an exhausted, fearful and despondent man of God. In thinking about this response of doubt leading to fear, I I couldn't help but think of Peter many years later. In Matthew 14, we see a story of Matthew and his, uh, sorry, of Peter and his moment of doubt, a moment of doubt. He and his fellow disciples had been with Jesus as he travelled the Judean countryside, declaring the good news that he, Jesus, had come to save his people, that God's plans spoken over centuries were coming to fulfilment, that God himself in Christ had come to his people to die in their place to bring and to gift his people forgiveness for their own rebellion against him. The intended purpose of this demonstration, it was a call to his people to turn their hearts back to him. As J.R. pointed out last week, Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of God's word through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus was the prophet who had risen up from among them and to whom they were to listen. Jesus, like Elijah and Moses before him, had demonstrated that he spoke God's own words through amazing signs. And in Matthew 14, Jesus turns five loaves and two fish into food enough for a great crowd. More than 5,000 people in, in the other Gospels are recorded. After this, after this amazing thing that Jesus has just done, he sends his disciples out in a boat. Jesus remains to pray. And we pick up our story at verse 23 of, chapter, of Matthew chapter 14. God's word says, When evening came, he, Jesus, was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, so very early in the morning, he came to them, Jesus, walking on the sea. <laughs> walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he he saw the wind, he he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. 
Despite all he had seen, despite Jesus calling him by name and Peter walking on water, Peter, in the moment, took his eyes off the Lord and onto his circumstances. He saw the wind. He saw he was now suddenly surrounded by waves and he had no way of floating on his own. And there he doubted that he could make it. He was fearful and he began to sink. And so too did Elijah. Now in his case, when his life hung in the balance, instead of seeking God's aid in that moment, instead of crying out, Lord, save me, Elijah allowed his circumstances to take him further. His doubt led to fear. And in the desert, his fear led to despair. Reverse 4. After walking a day into the Sinai desert, it was there under the broom tree that we see how far Elijah's fear had driven him. After days of trudging across Israel and then Judah and then the general wilderness of the desert, Elijah appears to have been ruminating on one thing, as we saw earlier. His failure. Somehow, despite all that God had achieved, Elijah had concluded that it had all been for nothing. And so under that broom tree, he cries out to God, but not for help like Peter, not for deliverance, but death. It is enough now. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. In somewhat contradictory fashion, Elijah has fled for his life from Jezebel, but as his doubt and loss of faith in God's call had turned to fear, and as his fear had turned to despair, he now sought that very same thing from God. This cry to God for relief through death is reminiscent of others in the Old Testament. We see Moses in Numbers 11, 11 to 15, and Job in 6, 8 to 9 of the book with his name. But most readily, this story of Elijah sitting under a tree, seeking his own death, is reminiscent of Jonah and his despondency, sitting under a tree overlooking the city of Nineveh. Of course, in Jonah's case, the people of Nineveh had responded to God's word appropriately. They responded in fear, in sackcloth and ashes and in repentance And they were saved. In Elijah's case, Jezebel and Ahab had heard the word but had not responded in repentance at all. But despite the difference, the underlying cause of each prophet's response was the same. They both consider in their minds that God's proper purposes, his his proper purposes, are not being met in that moment. Jonah seeks the Lord's punishment Elijah seeks the Lord's salvation, but neither of them in the moment are ready to trust that God has the situation in hand. When the outcome is different to their expectation. And in each case, they say, well, that's it. I've had it. That is enough. Now, don't get me wrong. Elijah was likely reading his circumstances right in that Jezebel was mad at him and wanted him dead that Jezebel and Ahab, Ahab had not turned their, back, their hearts back to Yahweh. And that as a consequence, as history showed, 
that would most likely, again, go badly for the people of Israel. But did that mean that God's promises or his purposes had failed? Did that mean that Elijah had failed? No. But Elijah allowed his expectation for what precisely he thought should have happened after the showdown at Mount Carmel. The dramatic repentance of the king and queen was, was clearly in his mind. And when God's plans were at odds with his own, well, those circumstances became unbearable. Ironically, while Elijah wanted the king and queen to say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. In that moment when his doubts led to fear and he ran, Elijah was effectively saying, Elijah, he should be God. Elijah, he should be God. The psalmist in Psalm 55 verse 22 says of, of burdens like despair, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Elijah did not cast his burden on the Lord in this moment. He had done so in the past. He'd seen all his work for God, all the signs that God had performed, the faithfulness of God to his word. He had seen the continued rebellion of the people toward God and the king. This wasn't something new, but he desperately wanted to see their hearts shift. He cared. But when Elijah perceives to have the, 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 the sign of all signs, the, the coming of God's fire again, when that sign did nothing to change the hearts of the wayward king and queen, he cares, he is devastated, and he blames himself. He does not cast his burden on the Lord. Again, quoting from Charles Spurgeon of Psalm, this time 50, 55, 22, he says, care, even though exercised upon legitimate objects, if carried to excess, has in it the nature of sin. The precept to avoid anxious care is one which cannot be neglected without involving transgression. For the very essence of anxious care is the imagining that we are wiser than God and the thrusting ourselves into his place to do for him that which he has undertaken to do fast. We attempt to think that that which we fancy he will forget. We labour to take upon ourselves our weary burden as if he were unable or unwilling to take it for us. Have you, have you faced this moment in your own life? Christian, have you, despite all you have seen of God in his word, in his faithfulness and power over history, in your own salvation throughout your life, have you thought that the only way out was to die? I know that some of us listening here today have. And as I've been reflecting on this passage these last few weeks, praying for you, my brothers and sisters, in this, I've been overwhelmed more than once with the circumstances that I know many of you 
circumstances of despair that I know you've felt. Like Elijah, so often we can elevate our own expectations that God will move in the way we think he should. And when we pray for it, when we want it, and yet it does not come about, we doubt God's hand. We doubt his sovereignty. We doubt his security. We fear that we are inadequate. We fear that our choices, that our actions are in that moment more powerful than those of God and that they have not turned the circumstances the way we thought they would. In fact, we might even think that somehow, out of God's control, we have caused the problem in the first place. In these times, we can become fearful of others around us. We can run from them. In these times, like Elijah with his servant, we can, we can send our friends away send people that might be able to help us away so that we can be alone. We might even blame those people for our circumstances and so refuse to talk to them as we wallow in our misery. Or maybe we isolate ourselves in a vain attempt to somehow spare our friends from the grief and misery that we're experiencing as though somehow that is what they would want. In our isolation, we then ruminate on what appears to us to be a hopeless situation, a situation we could not possibly bear on our own and we see no way out. And of course, these don't usually happen out of the blue. In fact, if we look back on Elijah's life, we see that the cracks were starting to show for some time. As J.R. pointed out in 1 Kings 17 verse 20, with the widow of Zarephath, Elijah took to accusing God of allowing the widow's son to die, either angrily attributing it to Elijah himself being at the home, or even possibly indignantly, how could you let this happen? I was here. Later in chapter 18, 22, despite Obadiah's message to Elijah in verse 13 that he had saved 100 other prophets of the Lord, Elijah stands and, and appears on Mount Carmel to dismiss any thought that there was anyone else but him standing up for God amongst God's people. And earlier in chapter 17, despite Elijah having demonstrated that if you listen to the word of the Lord, you can have confidence in your circumstances, no matter how dire, and despite Elijah showing the widow of Zarephath that she could likewise trust God's word, Elijah stopped listening. And now exhausted, self-exiled, and at his wit's end, Elijah sits in the desert, does not seek God's hate, but seeks God's end. It is enough. What does our faith do when our expectations are not met? When we invest time and love into a person's life, a spouse, a friend, a child, when we pray for them, guide them, tell them of their need for the saving work of Christ in their life, and yet we see no sign of change in their lives when we daily struggle with the burdens of life, the stress of family, of children that seem to not change, of, of work, each of them having a, a trouble of their own with no sign of it getting better despite our attempts. Do you work hard to be, to be likeable? Do you faithfully serve and sacrifice and desire to do all of that? to God's glory, yet people hold on to past hurts 
They second-guess you and appear not to like you. Maybe you wrestle with your experience of church. Maybe you wrestle with the experience of this church. It's not what I thought it would be. It's not grown as fast as it should. It's, it's not doing the things I thought it would. There are many circumstances that we might turn to God and say, what are you doing? How can this be? Do you even care? How often with our limited imagination do we look at our circumstances and compare them with the circumstances that we desire? Even good things, things that we figure are in line with God's will, yet without full insight, our imaginings turn to demands and we say, how could this possibly be God? Something has clearly gone wrong. I'm to blame. Why do we do this? I think at least one reason. Like Elijah, in our sin, we try to trust God rather than actually trusting Him. We walk by sight. We try and achieve our things and we, we hold on to them. And in our limited sight, we forget to walk by faith. In Elijah's case, in the moment, what could possibly have been better than the repentance and faith of Ahab and Jezebel and the restoration of the faith of the nation once more? In that moment, how, how, how could there possibly have been a better outcome? Well, we have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? In God's plan, how about the appearance of a greater king? King Jesus. God made human to atone for all of the sins of God's people in the whole world, not just Israel, and to draw even more people, me, you, all the nations, to himself. While our sight sees only the circumstances around us, our faith trusts that God not only cares and has those circumstances in hand, but, he also, but we can also trust that God has better plans than we do. And so, with Elijah, we move to our final big idea. Our circumstances may lead us to doubt, fear, or despair, but God, in his glory, remains sovereign. Verse 5. After Elijah cries out to God, he lays down to sleep under the broom tree. But rather than allow him to die as requested, thankfully. While he sleeps, an angel comes to him, touches him and says, Arise and eat. Elijah looks and at his head is a cake of bread and water supplied by the angel. Elijah gets up, eats and lays down again. The angel of the Lord comes to him again and says to Elijah, Eat, arise, the journey is too great for you. And again provides a cake of bread and water. Incredibly, despite his current stance towards God and his methods, God has not left Elijah. God, through his angel, comes to Elijah's aid despite his failings, despite his doubt, 
his fear despite his running away and despite him spiralling into despair. God is not phased. Our reactions don't dictate God's control. God sends aid to Elijah through the angel and I think it's pretty awesome in the big picture that in bringing encouragement to the despondent Elijah, God does a repeat of his actions in Zarephath effectively. As we've talked about, Elijah was with the widow in chapter 17, verse 13. She's fearful and in despair for her life. She's ready to take and make and take a final meal before she and her son would die. Elijah asks her for some bread, a small cake of bread and some water, and says to her, do not fear. And he asks her for that and he tells her to go and to do what she'd come to do. And from that moment, God demonstrated his capacity to supply the widow's needs by effectively providing an unending supply of bread to survive the drought. Now in this moment, in the same way, God sustains Elijah with the same provision and in that moment, God's saying to Elijah, do not fear. Elijah eats again and then goes in that strength of the food for 40 days and 40 nights. Pretty decent period of time on a couple of pieces of bread. The angel was clearly right in saying that that journey would, not, would be too great for Elijah without God's supply. He was ready to give up before that. This was going to be too much for him. But I think it's important and encouraging, I think, to note that while God provides and sustains Elijah so that he can persevere in that moment, Elijah does not appear to be freed from his despondency just yet. After this encouragement, he then trudges for the 40 days across the desert. Incidentally, one day for each year that Israel did the same thing in the same desert after they failed to trust God at his word. So while Elijah is sustained, we see, and we'll, we'll look more next week, that his underlying concern remains. <clears throat> he has not had a sudden reversion to his strong and confident self. It seems that during the 40 days of wandering, his melancholy remained. He, he may have even still been ruminating on his apparent failure. But God sustained him through it, allowed him to continue to go. And in God's providence, he arrives at Horeb, the Mount of God, the place where God, again through the angel of the Lord, met Moses in the burning bush, and where he then later gave Moses the law, and where he will also meet with Elijah We'll talk about that next week. And of course, it's not just Elijah that spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert either. Our Lord Jesus, at the beginning of his three-year ministry on earth, was also led into a 40-day trial in the desert. In Luke 4, 1 to 13, we see that during this time, uh, that, that, that's where that's sorry, found, sorry. During this time, we see in Mark, but he too was tended by angels. And during this time, he suffered temptation to give in, to distrust the promises of God, to give up all that he had come to do. But Jesus, the prophet greater than Elijah, greater than Moses, 
God's own son, he remained obedient to his call and did not sin. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, again, in his final moments of struggle, as he prepared to now die for the sins of the world, an angel again strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Luke 22, 43. And there again, Jesus persisted and prayed and said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. As he looked to the cross to make a way for us for God's people to finally be brought back into relationship with him, the ultimate sign of God's divine power. We read Psalm 138 at the beginning of our time together today and we recognise that God, and that psalmist, David, recognised that God will fulfil his purposes for him and it's a promise for us that he will fulfil his purposes for us. As God knew Elijah... God knows you. He has your circumstances in hand. Even if we, like Elijah, can't see it, God knows the work and the plans he has for you. The trials and suffering he will lead us through. And he will provide for us through it all, even if we cannot see beyond the next step. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 um, tells us that Christ provides us sufficient grace for today and for all he has prepared for us to do. Friends, we, we don't provide the grace. Our faith is not so steady that we will not stagger. But we can rely on a divinely given confidence in an all-sufficient God. So if you today are in a place of doubt or fear, if your expectations have been dashed, in your, if your circumstances are so overwhelming that you don't know how to go on, if you're in despair even, would you take heart God knows the plans and the work he has prepared for you to do. He sees you. He knows you. And he will supply all you need to achieve his purposes. Call out to him. Reach out your hand in the storm and seek the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ here today too. Talk about what's going on. Pray together. Find peace and joy together in him. Trust that he can supply. Of course, if you've not yet accepted Christ's invitation of forgiveness that I've spoken about this morning, if you don't know this hope or how this hope is even possible, let me assure you that it is and you can have that hope. Jesus calls his people to believe that he is the Lord, to repent and to turn away from the life lived for yourself and to live for him and his glory. And I'd love to talk to you about that if you haven't or if you'd like to over lunch. And so in light of this great love of Jesus, just as the psalmist said in Psalm 55, 22 that we read earlier, the Apostle Peter, many years after his experience with Jesus in the boat, wrote in 1 Peter 5, 
6 to 11, these words, an encouragement to Christ's followers. So let me close by reading God's word to us and then we'll spend some time singing and praying as we respond to that word in song. God's word says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has conquered death through Christ's work on the cross. He can and will sustain you through this time, no matter how long that time is, and until he calls you to be, come home with him to his eternal glory. Will you trust him with your circumstances today? Let's pray together as Jared comes up to lead us. <coughs> Almighty God, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that you, in your big picture, in your big view, could see Elijah's situation, could orchestrate the circumstances of Elijah's life in such a way that you can speak to us through it today. God, that's beyond our comprehension. And so sometimes are our struggles. And so, Lord, we pray that when we cannot see a way forward, when circumstances are hard, we pray that we would trust you. We pray that we would look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that you promised to sustain us. You are an awesome God. Challenge us now, Lord. Bring to mind for us as we, as we reflect on your word where you would have us change. Bring to us encouragements, Lord, as we look back and see what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that you would be Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.